You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena, the parochial vicar of St. Anne's Parish in Butte, Montana, and chaplain of Butte Central Catholic Schools. Enjoy. Do a little quiz here. Christ is risen. That was pretty, pretty unanimous, but the correct answer is, indeed, he is risen. <laughs> Christ is risen. <laughs> but, but is he, though? Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Sure, the tomb is empty, but what does that mean? That might seem like an inappropriate question, for a priest to ask on the Feast of the Resurrection. But I think it's one that we need to ask. Why is that? So a week ago, I was in New York with eighth grade class from Butte Central, and we were standing in Central Park, gazing up on the, what's now called Billionaire Row. It's a high-rise apartments on the south end of Central Park in Midtown. And there are two apartments going up that will both be taller than the Empire State Building. Apartments that are going to be taller than the Empire State Building. And one of them consists of only 60 condos total. So I looked at the listings for it. And only one of those condos goes for less than $20 million. And the higher up suites easily exceed $100 million. And there are 20 skyscrapers going up in New York City right now all a thousand feet or taller. You know, compare that kind of incredible thing to something experienced a few days later, something we all saw, when Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris burned down. And the great roof of that cathedral, which now lays in ashes, consisted of 52 acres of forest, 1,300 trees, each beam in the ceiling was a single tree, and the 5,000 main beams were all oak trees that were at least 400 years old when they cut them down. There's not enough old-growth oak left in Europe to rebuild the roof of Notre Dame Cathedral. So experiencing these two things, you know, one great building burning down, other sort of great buildings being so furiously built, kind of had to meditate on the differences and the similarities between our culture today and the culture of 12th century Paris. Now, both of those things are sort of marvels in their own right. Now, Notre Dame Cathedral consumed all the greatest architects and builders and artists and stonemasons and all sorts of tradesmen for a hundred years. And not, not to mention the amount of money and labor that that took, and what drove them. You know, they wanted the greatest structure that humanity had ever undertaken to be for the glory of God and his church. And we see that same ingenuity today, and a similar energy. But where, where do we direct it? You know, to high-rise apartments and skyscrapers and sports arenas, to our own glory. That's where our energies are directed. And am I saying that we live in some time of unprecedented pride and greed? No, you just have to Google the Baroque palaces of 
18th century Europe to, to make any high-rise apartment in Manhattan look trivial. And it's, it, it doesn't worry me that some people are expending their whole lives and energy to worldly pursuits because that's always been the case and it always will be the case to a certain degree. What might be worrisome is that so many people today, especially young people, feel like that's all the world has to offer. That that's the only thing there is. And there's a feeling in our own time that the era of 12th century Paris, where we, we expended our whole lives in magnificent and beautiful worship of God, is a time that's dead and gone, and might as well never have happened. In a culture like ours, which is so consumed with pleasure and money and power, is inevitably just busy. You know, you ask anyone how they've been, or how they're doing, they're gonna say, I'm busy, man. I asked a fifth grader how they're doing. They said, Father, I'm so busy. I got so much to do. I'm like, you're in fifth grade. I'm like, I don't know, I'm just overwhelmed. And what are we doing? What is, why are we so busy? What, how are we spending our time? We don't know. We're just running around. But we certainly don't have time for questions so heavy as, did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Because that takes some time to meditate on that. But if he didn't rise, then we have to salvage the stones that are left from the Notre Dame Cathedral, and we need to build another luxury apartment. Because if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then the church is a fraud. Then you ought to kick me out of this church and make me go get an honest job. Right? Because that's the only reason I'm here. But I'm not here today to prove the resurrection. That's, a, that's an entirely different homily, and I don't think one that's necessarily fitting for today. But what I do want to explore is what stops so many of us from living our lives as if the resurrection actually happened? No, we go about most of our days as if Jesus Christ never became a man, as if he didn't die for our sins, as if we aren't right this moment preparing our souls for eternal life with him. You know, how can this be possible? How can this seem to have changed nothing, even for us who have faith? I don't think it's only possible for us to live our lives that way. I think it's actually easy for us to do that. And that's because we as humans are very good at lying to ourselves, especially when we're afraid. Now, our first reading during the Easter Vigil is always the creation story. The Easter Vigil, if you've ever been to one, you know it's seven Old Testament readings that span the whole of, of the history of salvation and sort of give us the picture, the only picture by which we can understand the resurrection. And it always begins with the story of creation. God creates the world and he proclaims it very good. Yet as we know and as the scriptures tell us and as Peter pre preaches about today, that doesn't last. You know, Adam and Eve sin. They're cast from the beautiful Garden of Eden, and death enters into the world. But don't you ever wonder how Adam and Eve were so easily duped and overwhelmed by a tiny snake? You know, you see pictures of, an, of Adam and Eve, of paintings of them, and it's them so confused holding the apple and this little tiny snake hanging from the tree. And it seems ridiculous. 
But let me tell you, that was no, no normal snake. No, that was the Nahash. The Nahash is the ancient serpent. It's actually the same word used in the Old Testament for Leviathan or sea monster or more commonly dragon. Basically, it was some great beast that was better than Adam and Eve in every possible way. Smarter, bigger, stronger, more clever. You know, and dragons are interestingly, you know, this, they're this incredible mythical creature that exists in every culture yet didn't actually exist in history. That's a weird thing to think about. When every culture separately kind of conceives the idea of a dragon, and yet dragons didn't exist. So how is that? You know, there's, there's a couple of psychologists who have suggested that, that dragons are sort of the mashup of all of our natural fear. It's sort of some primordial combination of fears that go all the way back to our sort of tree-dwelling ancestors. Are you afraid of snakes? I mean, everybody's afraid of snakes, and we don't know why. It seems kind of ridiculous, but, but we all have this weird fear, and that's actually because it's built into our bodies to be afraid of snakes. What about big cats or predatory birds? You know, when you put these three things together, which are our ancient ancestors' enemies, you get a dragon. So it's the sum of all of our natural fear. And what does that have to do with the resurrection? It's interesting, but every man and woman on the face of the earth has a dragon to contend with. Something that keeps us from living our life to the fullest. And that great beast has planted itself right in the middle of the road that leads to eternal life. Right in the middle of that narrow way. And most of us would do anything rather than face that dragon. Anything rather than face our fears. And we find solace in our, in our refusal to face that by pursuing things like pleasure and money and power. You know, we live these mediocre lives and we just hope that those things will combine to make it somewhat nice. You know, there's another psychologist, Jordan Peterson, who, when he's speaking on the subject of fear, and fear specifically in the, in the scriptures, he recounts the legend of, of King Arthur and, and the Knights of the Round Table when they decide to go off on a great adventure for the Holy Grail. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, I guess you kind of get the idea, but... As they're pursuing this adventure, they think, where do you start? Where do you start the most worthy of adventures? And so they all went out to the edge of the forest, to the edge of the unknown, you could say. And each of them entered the forest at the place that looked darkest to them. That's how you enter onto a great adventure. You look at what is the scariest, most mysterious thing. That's where you go. That's an adventure worth taking. And that's the Christian life. You know, we aren't called as Christians to live easy lives. That will never make us happy. It won't make us happy in this world, and it won't make us happy in the next. And yet we find ourselves looking at the worthy Christian life, at the lives of great saints, of Mother Teresa, of Damien and Molokai, of John Paul II, and we recoil when we look at their lives. We're terrified of that. Because there's some great dragon standing in the way of that. And what is it for you? What's your fear? 
Is it, is it that God's going to take something from you? I was always terrified that God was going to take something from me. Is it silence? Are you afraid of silence because of what you might find out about yourself? Young people are generally terrified of silence. Is it some deep hurt that, that just cannot be forgiven? Or is it something that you did that you can't forgive yourself for? Don't let any of these things keep you from the most worthy of adventures. You know, Adam steps into the scene in the garden and he sees Eve. He looks upon Eve, his love, the one whom he is called to give his life for. And then he looks at the dragon, this great beast that is greater than him, that he cannot overcome on his own. And what does he do in that situation? Nothing. He does nothing. He lets Eve face the beast alone. He fails in the one duty that God gave him to protect the garden and protect the one he loves. You know, but where Adam fails and where we so often fail, Jesus Christ does not fail. Was Jesus afraid in the garden of Gethsemane? Of course. He was terrified. The dude sweats blood in the garden. You know, Pope Benedict XVI says, the natural will of the man Jesus, his human will recoils in fear before the enormity of the crucifixion. He's terrified. Yet as the Son of God, he places his human will into the Father's will and says, not I, but you. You are baptized. You are sons and daughters of God. And you have that same right. When you face the great dragon, you call upon God to come to your aid. When that great enormous dragon has planted itself on the road to eternal life, you call upon the strength of God. So don't shrink from the journey. Don't shrink from the Christian life. It's the only life that's worthy of your dignity. No one else is going to make you happy. Nothing else is going to make you happy. Not a $100 million high-rise condo in Manhattan. No amount of fame, no amount of pleasure, no amount of power will ever satisfy. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and only friendship with him can satisfy our hearts. So face the dragon and become the saint you're called to be. Amen. <laughs>